if you've been abused, that was not your fault. And so many abuse survivors, um, because the offender tells them it's their fault, oftentimes the churches or church leaders will imply it's their fault. You know, what were you wearing? What were you doing? Um, and they put the burden back on the victim. But Jesus in Matthew 18, when he's talking about the little children in the first 14 verses, in that passage, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, verse 10, and verse 14, all mention the little children. Jesus puts the blame at the feet of the offender. And abuse is never the fault of the victim. It's always the guilt, the responsibility is always laid at the feet of the offender. This is The Calling with Steve Smith, a Family Life original podcast that talks with pastors about the professional and personal challenges they face in their mission to lead others to Christ. Our guest for Episode 8 is Pastor Dale Ingram of Speaking Truth in Love Ministries. Let's give a little background first, Dale. Give us the path to Speaking Truth in Love Ministries, your background uh, yes. as far as a pastor, where you've been, and how it led you to this point today. I guess it would take us back to Bible college. Uh, my wife and I both graduated from Practical Bible Training School, which is a little college in Johnson City, New York. It's now Davis College, located up at Word of Life campus now. But I graduated in 83 and Faith graduated in 84. And when we were dating, just before we got engaged, Faith was able to tell me that her father had sexually abused her. But I did not know the extent of the abuse. My first reaction was, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And um, Faith's response was, well, we have to love and forgive. And that's, I think there's a real tension point there between, for, for Christians, because we know instinctively somehow we have to do something or hold people accountable, but the Bible talks about love and forgiveness. And so how do those two interface? How do they connect? And what we tell people now at our conferences is back then, we would have said we were being loving and forgiving with face dad. But in reality, what we did was nothing. I never confronted him with what he had done to faith, not until 2006. Um, we maintained a fairly normal relationship with their father for most of my ministry up until 2006, which is when God woke us up. But, you know, we would tell people we were careful of the children. We didn't let the kids go spend the night at their house. You know, we were, we thought we were being careful, but now looking back, we were not careful enough. But in 2006, Face Dad molested one of her nieces. And it was that event that really woke us up. So I was a full-time pastor at Curtis Baptist Bible Church in Campbell, New York. And I went to confront Face Dad with two of her brothers. And that all by itself was a, a educational process. I learned a lot, unfortunately, um, about dad that wasn't good. 
But that's when I sat down with Faith and said, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to confront your dad tonight with what he did to you years ago. And I need to know more about the abuse. And that's when Faith was able to tell me that he had sexually abused her from the time she was nine years old until 18. And, and even worse is he was a pastor the whole time. So he was reported to the authorities in 2006. It went to family court. He did plead guilty to abuse. He got a slap on the wrist. He was a registered sex offender, six years probation, no jail time. But it was that process where Faith knew she was going to be sharing her story. She sent a letter to her brother. She sent a letter to her mom. Uh, that letter uh, made its way to the district attorney. And when Faith's dad knew that she would testify against him, he pled guilty to what he had done to her niece. But that was the beginning of Faith and I educating ourselves. They started buying books and going online. And in 2007, that was the year that Faith and I had a lot of discussions about sexual abuse, domestic violence, and the need to start a ministry. So that's kind of just in a real nutshell how and why we got started. Speaking with uh, Dale Ingram, Speaking Truth in Love Ministries. By the way, if you want to read Faith's powerful testimony, you can do it on their website, speakingtruthinlove.org. And in uh, Faith's own words, uh, they're uh, written right there, the powerful, powerful testimony. Uh, Dale, this situation where you say, you know, sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, especially now that we're talking in the church, so many times, at least in the past, yeah. and maybe we're getting better. I don't, I, you can speak to this more than I can. But um, many times it's brushed under the rug because see, people just ignore it yeah. to say like, oh, he couldn't do that or she, he's a good man. He, you know, but we have so many yeah. layers. Are, are we getting any better at uh, confronting the situation? I think to some extent we are, but we're woefully behind where we should be. Um it's it's human instinct when when something of this magnitude, whether it's a, a child who's been sexually abused or being sexually abused or a wife who's being beaten by her husband. And in some cases, we're talking the guy may be a pastor like with Face Dad or other pastors. It, it's horrific. And the church doesn't want to they don't even want to go there in their minds. So it's still a huge problem, the idea of sweeping it under the rug, people denying it, not believing it's happening. But there is a bit of an awakening that's taking place. Faith and I are finding more and more pastors are open to the idea of having us come to a conference at their church or speak in their church on Sunday mornings. The statistics are really staggering. And I remember in 2007 when Faith was getting the statistics, it's the first time I had ever heard statistics on sexual abuse. And the studies show somewhere between one in three women. Sometimes the studies show one in four women. But pretty consistently, one in six boys are raped or molested by the time they're 18 years old. Now, just you let that sink in for a minute, and that's just 
staggering to contemplate. And and then if you throw in, um, you know, date rape and what's happening at college campuses, the statistics are actually similar. One in three, one in four women, one in six men sexually abused at college. So you start adding some of these statistics up and the number of people being sexually abused there is is astronomical. And what's really alarming is that there's little difference between the church community and the non-church community. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't make sense, but we've seen similar statistics with divorce. You know, we've heard those statistics for years and that there was little difference between the church community and the non-church community. And we're finding the same thing uh, when it comes to sexual abuse and domestic violence. It just seems to be rampant. Dale, do you feel like sometimes you're swimming upstream in the battle uh, in that? Um, you know, some people might say, well, how can this good person do this awful thing? But I can, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to know the, the part that pornography plays in this whole thing and that yep. the, uh, they're desensitized in a way, aren't they? Do you find that? Uh, absolutely. And, and the pornography makes everything worse. I don't think the pornography is the beginning of it. Just as an example, a few years ago, uh, before my mom had passed away, she was 90 years old and she had read our book, uh, Tear Down This Wall of Silence, which deals with sexual abuse. And mom told me one day when we were at the house, just kind of out of the blue talking about her childhood, she said she was raped when she was 12 years old. And, And then after that, she was raped at least twice more by men in the community. And I could see the tears in my mom's eyes uh, as she's talking about this. And, and mom was born in 1923. So this is something that took place in the 1930s. Mm. I think this stuff has always been around. It's been around for generations, but it's been so well hidden in such a dark secret that nobody wants to talk about it. But then when you add pornography and the accessibility to that, and now kids, um, you know, I think that's something before, for the most part, kids were probably more isolated from, from the pornography when it was, you know, magazines. But now it's digital, it's in their hands when they've got their phones. It's, it's making things much, much worse. Speaking with Dale Ingram of uh, Speaking Truth and Love Ministries. So we have this problem that's uh, obviously there. What are some of the things, and they can, again, find uh, online, but uh, speak to what are some of the trainings and education and things that, okay, let's say a church uh, is involved and they see a problem. Uh, Tell us how your ministry helps out uh, in a practical way. Three of the presentations that we like to do, uh, the first one is called Understanding Abuse and then responding to abuse, and then healing from abuse. In those three presentations, um, the first one kind of lays a foundation. It helps people to understand not just the statistics and the prevalence of abuse, but a really big one is the impact of abuse. I mean, I had no clue how devastating sexual abuse is. And when we're talking 
children, and, and this doesn't make sense to most Christians, but we're talking, we're talking children from infancy, toddlers, all the way up to teenagers, they are being sexually abused, many of them. And it just, it blows your mind because you can't wrap your head around it. But many are. And the only way we're going to begin to break the cycle of abuse in our churches is we've got to understand it, better understand it. So we go in and talk about the statistics. We talk about the impact. We, we lay a biblical foundation. Um, God has a lot to say in his word, actually, about topics related to abuse and domestic violence and, and how we treat our wives, how we treat our children. And um, so we'll deal with that under understanding abuse, responding to abuse. What we're finding in many churches when the abuse issue comes up, and, and, I, and I understand why this happens, but one of the first things the church will do is get a hold of a lawyer and get counsel from a lawyer. But in many cases, the legal counsel is going to be the opposite of biblical counsel. In other words, the, the Bible would say when, when a child has been a, harmed or when a, 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 a wife, a vulnerable adult has been harmed, we're to minister to them. But oftentimes what an attorney will do is say, have no contact with a victim. And the last thing you do is admit guilt. When that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says, we, we should confess what we've done wrong. And, and we need to take ownership of what we've done wrong. And if there's in, in cases where churches have mishandled things or churches have hidden things, the only way to get that right with God is, is it's got to be brought out in the open and it's got to be confessed and dealt with. And so there's, again, there's a tension point, a great tension point between what the Bible would tell us to do as a church, a Christian organization, and what legal counsel tells us to do. And in so many cases, I would say probably the vast majority, churches lean towards listening to their attorney and not really what God's saying in his word. You've touched on it, Dale. Talking with Dale Ingram of uh, Speaking in Truth, Speaking Truth in Love Ministries, and find out all the information you would like to find out about, even to set up uh, with Dale and Faith can come to your church or organization. SpeakingTruthInLove.org. But you've touched on it already, Dale, about secrets destroy, whether it be the perpetrator yeah. or the victim, don't they? I mean, it, when, secrets they just destroy lives all over the place. They do, and you know. Churches are uncomfortable. We're all uncomfortable with hearing things that trouble us. And the sexual abuse of children is so horrific, we, we don't want to think about it. And people go to church and we want to have the wonderful, positive, uplifting experience. And so oftentimes the last thing we want to hear is something horrific that's happening. But one of the books that Faith has at home talks about one of the most important things or the beginning of someone's healing journey as an abuse survivor is to be able to tell their story. And when the church kind of has an attitude of you need to just forgive, forget, and move on with your life, and, and sometimes they'll literally say, if you forgive your offender, 
That means you can never mention this to anybody ever again. And we've literally heard those exact words being told to victims. And what that does is it, it, it like locks the victim in a prison that they can never get out of. Because to heal and begin their healing journey, it means telling their story with different individuals on different occasions. They need to process what they've been through to find healing. And sometimes it's a lifelong journey. And so when the church, because we're uncomfortable or we don't want to hurt, you know, the name of Christ, you know, it's the sin and the crime that hurts the name of Christ. It's not dealing with it and allowing victims to share their hurts and their wounds. So, yes, I think we sweep it under the rug sometimes because it's the quickest, the easiest thing. But that just lays there dormant and it destroys the life of, of the one who's been abused and the ramifications, the ripple effect of that goes out into their marriage and their relationship with their children. And, and sexual abuse and domestic violence, I think, are two of Satan's pet projects. And he's, he's wreaked havoc in our churches and our families because of those things. I'm not sure what kind of statistics uh, answer this problem of it, but uh, very few, I would imagine, uh, perpetrators, uh, well, they don't stop until they get caught. Uh, they don't, very few, I would yeah. imagine, come out and say, yes, I, I have, you know, I am in the midst of doing this and I want to get help and, and that kind of thing. I, I can't imagine that happens very often. But as a sense of encouragement, have you had some of those stories uh, that you can not particularly, you know, we're not ask, asking naming names, but just stories of people right. who did come out before the legal action started and lives were turned around? You know, we've had a couple of cases where it seemed like offenders may be repentant. Um, the the real test of that, the acid test of that, is over time. It's it, it offenders are really really good on the spot of saying I'm really sorry, I feel terrible, and and if they know you know what they've done, they'll talk openly about it. But oftentimes, when there were different people, they'll deny it or they'll change their story. But I think the real test is um, when they do face justice and they go to prison and they get out of prison, okay, now what are you doing with your life? And I, I love the passage in Ephesians 4 where it talks about let the him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his hands, working that which is good that he may have to give to those in need. Now, that's a beautiful picture of transformation. It's coming full circle. And if we have an offender who's truly repentant and they want to change their life, it's much, much more than just stopping the, the sin and the crime. For there to be true transformation, the, for the, the thief, it's not just about stopping stealing, but now Paul says, you have to start working, doing something that's good, legitimate, that you actually have the means now to help others who are in need. So your life's completely transformed. And I don't know what that would look like for an offender, but I would think part of it would be maybe a ministry to other offenders in terms of trying to expose the, the extent of abuse as well as, as you know, have 
have a study guide, have a biblical guidelines for working with offenders, helping them to get out of that, break the, the behavior patterns and change their lives, but it's coming full circle. Talking with Dale Ingram, uh, Speaking Truth in Love Ministries. They, they exist to prevent abuse, domestic violence, uh, through information, education, training, also the encouragement. And, and Dale, I can uh, it's so prevalent, this, the sexual abuse problem and abuse, that uh, I can't imagine someone listening right now right now, since it is so prevalent, is in the midst of it, and they're, they're hiding it, they're, they're keeping it a secret. And if you had the chance, and I, I guess you do, because you uh, were, we're here talking, if you had the chance yes. to speak to someone right now in the midst of that secret, uh, wh- what would you tell them? So several key things we really, really try to, to get across to abuse survivors. Number one, God loves them. He loves you. He cares for you. The abuse that you've endured was not a part of God's plan for your life. Sometimes, you know, well-meaning Christians will say things like, well, you know, God's going to be, God meant this for good. But sin is never a part of God's plan for your life. Another thing we try to get across to abuse survivors, if you've been abused, that was not your fault. And so many abuse survivors, um, because the offender tells them it's their fault, oftentimes the churches or church leaders will imply it's their fault. You know, what were you wearing? What were you doing? Um, and they put the burden back on the victim. But Jesus in Matthew 18, when he's talking about the little children in the first 14 verses, in that passage, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, verse 10, and verse 14, all mention the little children, Jesus puts the blame at the feet of the offender. And he says there in verse six, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown to the sea, than he should harm one of these little ones or cause one of these little ones to sin. The Luke 17, two passage says, it's better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and thrown to the sea than he, that he should offend one of these little ones And abuse is never the fault of the victim. It's always the guilt, the responsibility is always laid at the feet of the offender. And what would you tell the uh, the person who's the the person, uh, the perpetrator, the person in the midst of actually they're they're listening right now and they're saying, oh, yeah, I know I'm guilty. I've tried to stop a million times and I haven't. And I keep doing this, uh, but I haven't been caught yet. Uh, What would you tell them? Well, number one, they need to get help. They need to get professional counsel by somebody that's that's trauma-informed. They need to make a full confession, and that means accepting the consequences of the sin. And only until there's intervention um, and serious intervention, uh, this type of behavior is not going to stop. There is hope for the offender if they repent and and come to Christ. You know, Jesus, even in Matthew 18, that verse where Jesus gives that ominous warning in verse six, where he says, it's better for a millstone to be hung around your neck. It's interesting because he doesn't say better than what, but the implication is better than when I get my hands on you because of what I'm going to do to you. It would be better that a millstone were hung around your neck and drowned. 
But right after that, he talks about if your eye offends, you pluck it out. Your hand offends, you cut it off. Your foot offends, you cut it off. He's saying you better do everything possible to keep from harming these children. And for the offender, there is hope, even in that, even though you know it's, it sounds you know drastic. Jesus says it's better to enter into life, halt or maimed, and be whole and cast into hell. That doesn't sound hopeful, but the hope is the fact you still can have eternal life if you give your heart to Jesus Christ, but you've got to take this issue seriously and you've got to deal with it. Well, uh, if you need information on uh, tackling this very, very difficult subject, uh, speakingtruthinlove.org. Dale and Faith Ingram, thank you so much for tackling uh, a very difficult, not a fun uh, situation. Mm-hmm. I love the quote on your website uh, from Edmund Burke that says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do mm-hmm. nothing. And so thank yes. you and thank you and Faith for doing something, taking that very difficult step and courageous step. And uh, Faith took that courageous step years ago. And uh, you guys continue continuing to fight the battle and you're you're fighting, uh, you know, don't, don't grow weary in doing well, Dale. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Episode 8 of The Calling, a Family Life original podcast for pastors. If you like what you heard, be sure to share it with others. And click subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Be sure to check out all of Family Life's original podcasts, including Therese Talk, If That Makes Sense, The Powerable Podcast, and Business by the Book. You can find them wherever you download content or at familylife.org. Family Life is a not-for-profit listener-supported ministry, relying on your generous support to make podcasts like this possible. Find out how you can get involved when you go to familylife.org.